Reclaiming Identity, sharing stories of struggle, pride, and redemption in reconnecting with our heritage. Hi, I'm Drora. And I'm Dahlia. And we're bringing you Reclaiming Identity as part of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. Do you feel a part of the Jewish story? Is your family what pops up when people think of Jews? At Reclaiming Identity, we celebrate and explore the greater Jewish experience. We encourage you to tell your story and take pride in your heritage as it is a part of your identity. Listen to other people's stories, ask questions, be curious, and reclaim your identity. Today we have the honor of welcoming Mr. David Dan Gore. Mr. Dan Gore is the president of the American Sephardi Federation. He's a Swedish businessman, diplomat, and philanthropist, born on his father's side from an illustrious Baghdadi Jewish family. His story itself travels the world from his parents' marriage in Iran to his adolescence in Sweden, time in London, the Far East, Montreal, and now in New York. Without further ado, here's my interview with Mr. David Dangor. My name is David Dangor. I am a Swedish citizen. My father came from Iraq, from Baghdad, and my mother from Vienna, Austria. They met in Tehran after the war, where I was born in 1949. And in 1950, we ended up in Sweden. So you were born in Tehran? I was born in Tehran, but I grew up in Sweden and I did all my education in Sweden. And uh, as a result of my background, and especially my father's background, whilst I loved Sweden, and I till today consider myself incredibly lucky to have grown up there, somehow I didn't feel that I fit. And uh, not only didn't I fit, but Swedish society Society is very homogeneous, and I probably stood out not being a typical Swede uh, because of my background and my upbringing. Um, an interesting part of my experience as a child going through to adulthood is when I went to kindergarten in the mid 1950s. They used to call me the Negro in the class, with a worse word. I had dark brown curly hair, brown eyes, and I was the only one in the class. Everybody else was blonde and blue-eyed. And uh, as I got a little older and I got into middle school, I became the Jew. Uh, they had figured out and learned a little more, I suppose, from the parents. And I was horrified and shocked that someone would, that my friends would sling out that as a derogatory comment about me. And uh, I was at that point in a school outside of Stockholm in a suburb. And that and a few other reasons triggered my mother to move me to a private school inside Stockholm. And there I stood out much less there were a couple of Jewish kids, although we never ever spoke about it to each other even. That's how you were in Sweden. But then as I got a little older and I uh, finished school and my father got pretty well known in Sweden, I was cursed with the word Arab. <laughs> they, they called me the Arab. So I went from Negro 
Jew to Arab. And uh, that left a mark on me. Uh, I couldn't believe that I would never be called a Swede. And now? Well, uh, things developed by the mid 1970s. Uh, I decided I had to seek my fortunes elsewhere. And I left Sweden joining an American company in uh, Switzerland, Lausanne. And from that moment, and this actually gives you a perspective to my experience, I suddenly in Lausanne and in Geneva, I met people that had the same background as me, Iraqi Jews, Egyptian Jews, Jews from Saloniki. I felt at home pretty quickly. I also met some Iraqi Jews and they knew my name, I knew of their name, it was all very nice. I then moved on to Germany with the company after a year in 1977. And there I stumbled upon a very small Jewish community in Munich that survived after the war or, or rekindled after the war that I believe was primarily a mix of Jews that survived concentration camps but never made it to Israel or Palestine or made it to America or anywhere else. They opted to stay in Germany. They were very successful and uh, remarkably assimilated in a way, but at the same time, much more orthodox than the Sephardic Jews I'd met in Geneva or my own background. They were so orthodox that at one point they wasn't sure I was Jewish and I was interrogated to make sure that my uh, credentials were accepted. And then, as I was at that point, 27-year-old... How did you prove your credentials, as you call them? Well, I told them that my father was... My great-grandfather was the chief rabbi of Baghdad. And uh, he was called the Hakam of Baghdad. That's actually funny that you asked the question. Because when I told him he was the chief rabbi Hakam, the father of my friend, this Orthodox actually knows the Jews said, I come, he probably was a butcher. That's how this very family gave me the best sort of send off on my way to be engulfed in Sephardic Jewish history. And that was, and I started to tell you, I was a 27 year old single boy with a good job. So there was some interest in that Jewish community in Munich to uh, get to know me a little better because they had daughters. So I went to one family once for a Shabbat dinner with a clear purpose of being vetted in case I'd be interested to take out their daughter. And little did they know, not only did I speak German because of my mother, but I also had a fairly reasonable understanding of Yiddish, not fluent, but I could sort of decipher with my help of German and expressions I'd heard from my mother. I realized that they were talking in Yiddish, the father and mother of my friend at the dinner table, saying that they thought I was very nice, but what a pity that I was a Schwarzer. I was stunned. Here I had thought I had chips on my shoulder from my experience in Sweden, but this in Germany hit me hard. And that stayed with me. And uh, subsequently after Munich, I moved to London with the same company and spent four years there. And that was a wonderful experience because all my father's family had immigrated to uh, London. So I had three uncles and two aunts and a lot of cousins quite engulfed in, in, with the family. And it was really an amazing 
amazing experience. And I could see how well the Iraqi Jewish community had established itself in England, and in this case, primarily in London. Following that, I was transferred to Montreal, and it seemed almost like a higher power was sort of designing my, my moves, because guess what's in Montreal? Another very substantial Iraqi Jewish community. And again, I had relatives there. And again, I was made felt at home very quickly. And it was a wonderful experience. Now, I'm rushing through my life a little bit, but let me just explain one thing whilst I'm doing it, is it felt very natural for me to move from place to place. I was not married, so it was easy for my company to move me. I didn't have problems with school, kids at school and things like this. And I really felt like I was on a journey in my life to see where I would ultimately settle and belong. And uh, I think my mind was pretty made up that I wanted to end up in London because of the big Jew Iraqi Jewish community there. But then I got transferred to New York and that was the next step in what I like to call my destiny. I arrived in New York, I didn't know many people. There was an Iraqi Jewish community here too. And guess what? I had relatives in New York as well. Uh, first cousins of my father. But anyway, New York was an overwhelming place to feel at home at quickly. So one evening, I used to work late in the office. Maybe I'd been there a few weeks. I walked out of my office onto 42nd Street past the Grand Hyatt Hotel. And outside the Grand Hyatt Hotel, there was a big poster that said meeting with the Jews from Libya. So I got curious. So I walked in and I sat down in the audience and I listened to their presentations. And I bought a book, I think it was called Jews from Arab Lands, something like this. And this was another sort of push that uh, really interested me Awoken, awakened even more my interest in the Sephardic Jewish and Iraqi Jewish history and background. At that meeting in 1987 at the Grand Hyatt was David Harris, and it was his wife, who was who's Libyan, who led uh, this conference. And there was this very famous Italian poet that was there. Uh, I don't remember the name right now who recited a beautiful poem, and I was very taken. I, of course, joined the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue, because that's what I'm used to from London and from Montreal. After I'd been there for uh, quite some time, one day, the chief rabbi at the time, uh, Mark Angel, approached me and asked me if I'd be interested to uh, take over the American Safari Federation as president, and he would introduce me to a gentleman called Leon Levy, who was the president and really carrying it on his shoulders. And I was very busy at that time with my career and I was really reluctant. Whilst I was intrigued, I just couldn't do it. I said, no, but Leon Levy insisted and we met two more times. And the third time he actually cried and told me, I mean, cried in a, very sort of subdued way. I mean, the tears were running. And he said, David, I have nobody. If you don't do it, it's the end of the American Safari Federation. And that was, of course, a way of putting an offer 
in a way that I couldn't refuse. So that's how I got involved. And so you've been the president of the American Society Federation for how long? Since 2003. And now you have a connection to Sweden again. Well, uh, you know, life has a funny way of developing. When I was with my company called Philip Morris, famous company, mm -hmm. I, I call it today, I call it, we were the AFO of 19, the 1980s and 90s. And uh, with that, I got invited to become chairman of the Swedish American Chamber of Commerce, which I was a few years. And that led to me having very close relations with the Swedish consul generals that were sent to New York, a succession of them that were really very nice, very good people. We became very good friends. And then Sweden in 2010 decided to uh, shut down their official consulate in New York for financial reasons. It was a consulate with 31 people. And if they didn't feel it made sense, they had a very big embassy in Washington. So they closed it, but they needed a representative in New York. So the Swedish government and King approached me and asked if I'd accept to be the honorary consul general of Sweden representing the country in New York in 2010. And whilst I wouldn't be paid, of course, uh, they would give me a small budget that I could hire four or five people to do what the consulate of 31 did. And I pursued that and I was the active honor consul general from 2010 to 2016. And I can tell you the five of our, my team and me, I will not exaggerate if I tell you we did as much as 31 people. Of course, there were some tasks we wouldn't get because we were not a diplomatic mission. So, but I'm glad to say that many years later, my team is still the core of the official now reopened Swedish diplomatic mission, which they reopened in 2016. And it was a lot of fun because when I was asked to be consul general, and also when they decided to reopen, both times there was a lot of uh, media coverage. And of course I was portrayed, it gave me sort of a kind of a satisfaction that I was portrayed in Sweden as this Swede who really represented Sweden very well in New York. That's it, you said you'd never be a Swede. And that's, I wanted to make sure that we got to that point where you were, you were the Swede. <laughs> I'll tell you, I am so lucky having grown up in Sweden and I'm so in awe of that country that uniquely amongst all Swedes that live here in New York, I don't have double citizenship. I have not applied for American citizenship. I'm just simply a Swede and that's how I want to be. So I want to go back now to a previous country. <laughs> so you were born in Iran, but did your parents ever tell you stories from Iraq or obviously you know about your grandfather, but have you, did they share other stories with you or speak to you in Arabic? You know, because my parents were a mixed European Middle Eastern marriage, they didn't have Arabic as a common language. When I lived in London and, and in Montreal, all my family spoke only Arabic with each other and everything. But I grew up speaking English at home. And uh, that was the common language between my father and mother. Although both of them spoke Persian fluently, and when they didn't want us to understand something, they would speak to each other in Persian or in French, which they also both spoke fluently until we learned French and that was no longer an option. 
But did your father tell you about uh, Iraq and his life there? Or? You know, in the beginning, in my childhood, no, it was, it, when I look back at it, at one point I used to be surprised, now I think I understand better. But my father was really shaped by his experience in a way that he only looked forward. He, he felt looking back and talking about the past was a waste. And I got more about his life from speaking to his sisters or his brother, than, one of his brothers, than I did from my father himself. My father was, when he was a teenager, uh, a very devoted student of Hebrew, of uh, the religious practices. And actually, as an 11-year-old, he was the one that held the eulogy for his gr grandfather, the chief rabbi, Baghdad, when he passed away. And as an 11-year-old, he stood up and made a speech. Uh, that's well remembered in the family and often spoken about. Then, being a few, uh, a very strong Zionist, my father got into trouble in his school, the Shamash school in Baghdad, uh, where I believe it was the athletic teacher was a Muslim. And the Iraqi government at the time must have been around, I'd say, 1934, 35. And they had um, deported two Palestinian Jewish teachers that were teaching the kids Hebrew. And my father was very offended by this as a young man. And some say he insulted the Muslim teachers. Others say he struck him. And the result was my grandfather, because of his good connections, had 24 hours to get my father out of Iraq. So my father is a 16-year-old was sent to London to join his two older brothers that were studying at university there. And my father finished school in, uh, in London. And uh, I think that experience was one, I suppose, uh, that marked his life also, just like me, of someone who took a while before he settled down. Because after London, he ended up in Beirut, and did some studies at the American University. And at some point he returned to Baghdad and was actually in Baghdad during the Farhud in 1941. And again, this is not lore, this is uh, eyewitnesses. Uh, my father, his older brother, Naim, had been in the army and done military service. And when the Farhud broke out, my father took Naim's military so put it on and went, took a gun and went out and went to his aunt and uh, stood in front of their house to protect them during the firehood. That was typical of my father. Uh, many times in my life, I saw a man who was unbelievably brave. And, I mean, he was fearless in most of the things he did in his life. Following that, my father decided there was no future for him in, in Iraq and he wanted to become a doctor in the United States. So he embarked on traveling to the US via Bombay, where there was family in Bombay. And as he arrives in Bombay, this Pearl Harbor happens, and that was the end of his dreams to go to the United States. So my father spent four years plus in Bombay during the war, worked for an English trading company that provided the materials and 
recruits for the Allied Army. And when he left Bombay in 1945, he made the brief stint in Baghdad, and then he went for a visit to Tehran. And coincidence had it, he met some people. He was by now, after his experience in Bombay, a devoted bridge player. He ended up staying in Iran, doing business out of Iran. The business he did was he was importing paper and pulp from Sweden for his family's publishing business and for the Iranian government. And that was his connection to Sweden. And in 1950, when my mother was pregnant with my sister after me, he took the, my mother and me on a business trip to Sweden. It was later in 1950. The result was uh, they stayed in Sweden. They never intended to move to Sweden, but when my mother and father saw Sweden that was untouched by the war in 1950 and saw all the people, how kind they were and how orderly the society was, they just ended up staying. But it's interesting, your father, you said, came from a very Jewish community, if not religious community. And then you said in Sweden, you were not part of the Jewish community, unless I misunderstood. We were not part of the Jewish community in the traditional sense. And it had a very easy explanation. The Jewish community in the 1950s was very Germanic, very Germanic. And my father, I mean, I'm saying this humbly, my father knew much more about the Jewish religion, the practices, and could recite much more than they could. And my father found them obnoxious. He thought their pronunciation of Hebrew was strange. And, and he felt that they didn't embrace him. Looking back at it, he was a tremendous asset that they could have made great use of. I mean, they, they viewed him as an Arab. They saw my father as an Arab before they saw him as a Jew. However, my father was generous to the congregation and we would go, my father and I, religiously, every Yom Kippur or Shoshana Passover synagogue, but we never did uh, Shabbat. My father didn't want to be part of it. Having a father that came from the Middle East and being brought up by him in Sweden, I mean, we were different. We couldn't understand the Jewish kids in general. Uh, we thought they were small-minded. We thought they were very introverted. You know, in the typical Sephardic sense, we had we didn't choose our friends based on if they were Jewish or not. And on top of it, because my father for a very long time was probably the only person in Sweden who was living there, who was fluent in Arabic, fluent in Persian, and with some status in society. So we grew up where the primary, primary friends of my parents were diplomats, the ambassadors from Middle Eastern countries. And uh, just without talking too much about it, I can mention that in 1968-69, two years after the uh, Six-Day War, at my parents' house, we used to have the Egyptian ambassador, the Israeli ambassador, the Lebanese ambassador, and the Indian ambassador over for poker games. They all loved each other. I wow. mean, you know, uh, in the diplomatic circle, I mean, if the diplomats could have run the, the politics in the Middle East 
there would have been peace a long time ago. Because what accentuated to these diplomats what they had in common was living in Sweden and feeling so foreign. And that's why they were so attracted to each other and to my father. Until the major immigration started into Sweden in the late 70s, 80s from Southern Europe and then Yugoslavia, I'll say throughout the whole 50s and 60s, it was unique to be foreign in Sweden. There were not many foreigners. Actually, my grandmother went through Sweden also after after the Holocaust, but uh, just putting it out there, but she was part of the Holocaust. Was she saved by the white buses and the, taken out of the concentration camps? Or? She, yep, she was exchanged for buses and then she went into uh, Rabbi Jacobson's school. Wow, look at that. You know, I need to mention one thing. This is all about me. I have three sisters. And I'll say, whilst for me being different was kind of a charmed existence in Sweden in one way, it, I think it was much tougher for my sisters because my father applied the Middle Eastern strictness and expectations on them. If there was a big difference between me and my Swedish boyfriends, and for my sisters, the difference between them and the emancipated Swedish women, that was quite something. So let's go from then the Sweden and feeling like an outsider. And you said you felt part of the community in London. Can you expand a little bit of what made you feel comfortable? Because you weren't raised that way. Yeah, you're asking a very good question because here comes the next twist. I walked into the community in London, you know, thinking I had uh, arrived in, in heaven finally. Here are all these people just like me. I love my family and my friends in London dearly, but with my Swedish upbringing and my mother being Austrian, I loved being with them, but, and I also made attempts wanting to, you know, get even more involved with the community. I also felt that that wasn't quite me either. And I, was, I don't know if I'm making the point well, but there was something in me that I couldn't settle 100%, for example, <coughs> marrying a girl from that community. So I went on as a bachelor for a very long time. That was my, my prize for my mixed and uh, muddled identity. And I finally, I, I must say, I think I found my home in New York. I think here in New York, you can be a little bit of everything like everybody else you fit in. And I ended up meeting and marrying a woman of Ashkenazi Jewish background, where everybody teases me and says, you married someone just like your mother. And I have to admit that there's some truth to that. I'm sure that's a good thing, though. So that's a <laughs> very good thing. Very good thing. You said that you found yourself there, but you married an Ashkenazi, you kind of distanced yourself from the community. And yet now you're running the American Sephardi. I don't know if that's the right word, running it. You're the president of the American Sephardi Federation. What made you decide to come back to those roots? No, I, I didn't distance myself. That's wrong. I didn't immerse myself 100%. I immersed myself 95%. But you know, when it comes to marriage, for example, I like 100%. So what made you decide to stick to the Sephardi part here, though? Oh, and that's very easy. Two things. I would recommend any Jewish child, and non-Jew, by the way, to read James Michener's book, The Source. The most fascinating summary of the destiny of the Jewish people and its history that I read and it's done in such a clever way to keep you interested. So I had already 
the bones. I read that in my late teens. I had the bones of an understanding of uh, Jewish history and, and uh, the Jewish experience. But when I became involved in the American Sephardi Federation, I realized quickly how little I knew. The destiny of the Jews from the Middle East, North Africa, and the original Sephardic Jews from the Iberian Peninsula, their destinies, their achievements, their contributions. Till today, I love what I'm doing because I learn every day and I get every day a deeper and deeper and deeper appreciation for what our people have done, what they've gone through and how they've started again. And I also have this deep appreciation for the openness of the Sephardic Jewish tradition and way of living. I mean, we don't look at people as non-Jews. We look at people as people. Uh, I think that's something very Sephardic. We don't wear our Jewishness on our shoulders or our sleeves or whatever the expression is. We carry our Jewishness in our heart. And that's a very solid place to keep it. So we can mix with people of all backgrounds. We can feel very comfortable with them. There is a drawback to the Sephardic openness. And that is, I believe our way of being leads to more intermarriage uh, out in our community than in the Ashkenazi community. And when I say that, I refer more to the difference between the Ashkenazi and Sephardim in Europe. But even here in the United States, when I look at people that belong to the American Sephardi Federation and come to our events, there are many people that stopped living a Jewish life on a daily basis a long time ago, one or two generations ago. And they are today motivated by going back to their roots. And I would say one of the biggest services the American Sephardi Federation provides outside of all the work we do in terms of studies, conferences, and other things, is we are actually a vehicle for many Jews to come back to home and feel that they belong. So I have to say that's a theme that comes up a lot, the openness of the Sephardi Jews, especially in this uh, series that we're doing right now. That's come up a lot. <laughs> um, one, of, one of my favorite examples of this is I don't remember exactly the event, but there was someone on one of our events, a woman on stage speaking, and then she spoke about her background. And suddenly someone in the audience stood up, another woman said, we are related, we are related. <laughs> and you know, uh, I, I thought that was a great example of how we offer opportunities for people to find themselves. So I think you're in a very unique position to answer this question because as your position, uh, if there's something that you want future generations to know about their heritage, what would it be? You know, that's a, that's a question that deserves a very well thought out answer. But I would say, I would refer to future Jewish generations. Uh, I would say, don't ever let go of your heritage. Learn it, understand it. And not only in terms of being able to rattle off prayers by heart or the blessings of the 
wine and, and the bread, learn about what are the principles of being Jewish. What, what are the, what's the purpose of being a Jew? I mean, we forget that there is a purpose of being a Jew. That's really the ultimate, ultimate Jewish DNA, our purpose. And once you understand the purpose, you can live a happy and satisfying life if you pursue that purpose. And picking up on that, would there have been something that you wish you would have done differently in terms of that role as your younger self? <laughs> yes, of course. I would love to go back to my father and say, Dad, can you bring back that Hebrew teacher? I want to learn Hebrew. Okay. So being part of the you learning know, all experience. those things parents tell you, when you get old, you're going to regret not doing this. They're right every time. And the welcoming in the... Let's just, you said that you're part of Sherith Israel, right? You're part of the Sherith Israel community and yeah. you're part of it also in Montreal. And um, that's not an Iraqi community. I want to make sure it's a Spanish Portuguese synagogue. How did you feel more at home there than you might in any other synagogue? Well, I'll tell you, this is interesting. Uh, there, there were some speculations that there were some Sephardic roots to the Swedish Jewish community. Because when I look at the way the Ashkenazi Jewish temple in Stockholm that I belong to, how the prayer rituals were and the respect and sort of the formality of it, it was very similar to Sheret Israel here. The atmosphere during the holidays were very similar. I, I did go, there are two Iraqi Jewish communities. There's one in Jamaica, Queens, and then one in Great, uh, Great Neck that had their synagogue. I went to the synagogue in uh, Queens very early on. One of my cousins here in New York took me there. And I must tell you, I was extremely moved when I experienced my first Iraqi Jewish Shabbat and, uh, and, and the way the community functioned. And what struck me was how much more informal it was and how much sort of more camaraderie there was also for the Jewish holidays. I also went there for uh, a Yom Kippur. But, you know, they spoke Arabic to each other. It was inconvenient. I live in the city. I wish I could have grown up in that spirit. You know, when you experience that Iraqi Jewish minhag, it felt like everybody loved what they were doing. When you are in shared Israel or an Ashkenazi synagogue, it feels more like they're doing what they're supposed to do. I may be a little unkind when I say that, but there, there's more of a discipline to it mm -hmm. rather than it just pouring out of your heart. No, I think that's also a theme that's been coming up a lot. Uh, actually, one of the women we interviewed spoke particularly about that. So thank you. Um, those are my questions. Is there anything I missed that you should bring up? I would say it's not only in the Iraqi Jewish community. I'm sure it's the same with the Moroccans, the Syrians, etc. The lay leaders, for example, in the Jamaica synagogue, Iraqi synagogue, there was a gentleman called Selim Mahla that was carrying the community on his shoulder. He was not a rabbi. He was not educated to be a religious leader. But he made, did a phenomenal job that also inspired me to see how a person on his free time would take responsibility for a community and keep it alive and, and try to 
do the best he can to make it a coherent community. Same thing uh, with uh, many of the Iraqi Jews in uh, Great Neck that have done so much, uh, Albert Nassim and a few others. These are, for me, they are heroes. You know, I had it easy. I had the American Sephardi Federation. It has a name, it, it has a mission, it sits in a, in a museum in the Center for Jewish History. They carry the communities on the backs and all the Jewish leaders, and I've met some from the Moroccan Jewish community, same thing. These are heroes. These are what I'd call real good Jews. I love that. And I have to say, American Sephardi Federation is not taking the easy way out. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> but um, we both know that. <laughs> but I all appreciate right. it. Thank you. I think you touched upon really all the points. So I don't want to continue for no reason because I think it was very powerful. So thank you. I enjoyed speaking to you. Take care. You too. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Reclaiming Identity is produced and edited by Moshe Singer and executive produced by Dalia Arusi and Drora Arusi. Our theme music is by Vanessa Paloma. Be sure to check her out on Spotify. Be a part of the reclamation. Subscribe to the Reclaiming Identity podcast on our website, instituteofjewishexperience.org, on our Facebook page, Spotify, or Apple Music. Follow our programs on our website and the Institute of Jewish Experience channel on YouTube. And please help support these and other ASF Institute of Jewish Experience efforts by donating today.